0: Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your goodness and thank you for your word. Thank you for working in our lives and working in our situations and our circumstances and uh, working in us both to will and to do for your good pleasure. And so, Lord, please do that in our hearts today and please guide us by your spirit as we read your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn to the book, anybody know? Philemon, Hosea was a good guess, Hosea was a good guess, and I'll tell you the story on that, Uh, Hosea comes after Daniel, we went through Daniel, finished it last week, and so we do an Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, and so the idea is we're going to march, hopefully the timing is going to work out, I might have to tweak, have to bundle a couple of them here and there, but uh, basically we want to do Malachi and Revelation, and so, uh, and then who knows? Maybe we'll do uh, Genesis and Matthew after that. But uh, the idea here is if you're new or visiting, uh, we love to teach the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. I uh, believe that uh, knowing the Word and living according to the Word by the power of the Holy Spirit is really uh, what gives us victory. And so uh, we do that by instructing the Word in the Word here today. You know, I lo- one of the things I love about teaching the whole Bible... Is we get to learn different genres, right that 's still right, good. Um, you know we studied history, we study prophecy, we study poetry, we study uh, epistles like like doctrinal letters like the book of romans and and uh, you know that sort of thing and what 's interesting today is this is probably. It's an easy book to kind of look over because it's just one chapter, it's just a few verses, but it's a personal letter from one Christian guy to another, right? And it's not like a doctrinal letter like Romans or anything like that. It's just a brief personal letter from one Christian to another. Now, you know, Jesus said the two great commandments, what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love what? your neighbors yourself. Have you noticed that, you know, we talked about with the Pursuit of God book, you know, really the essence of what we want to do and who we want to be is people who have fellowship with God, intimate, personal fellowship with God, right? But we also live in a world that's got other people in it. Anybody notice that? So that's the easy part, right? Like we don't need any instruction on how to deal with other people, do we? Well, we're going to read it anyway. Okay, whether you think we need it or not, we're going to read it. But here's the thing. You know, if we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's really the first and great commandment. But the second one is, is not too distant in importance, and that is interacting with others and living in a community and, you know, living out this Christian faith in a family, in a church, in a workplace, in a neighborhood, wherever we find ourselves, uh, it's really, it's, it's, really. I think of it like it's the laboratory of what goes on in our life in, our, in the first part, right? In the first part, we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then oftentimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like, you know, in my self-evaluation, right, I'm pretty good with the Lord. And then the laboratory is when I get snappy with my wife or my kids, right? And I might realize that that self-evaluation needs a little reflection, right? It's like uh, I've – my kids know this statistic better than I do. Um, Like 80% of all drivers surveyed, I think, said that they drive better than average. But is, like, is that about right? 100 percent yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, we all think we drive better than average, right Well, sometimes we need a, sometimes we need a, a sort of mirror, if you will, to self-evaluate and, and I think in large cases that's how we interact with one another and but you know the end goal, the end, goal, the end game, is fellowship with God, uh, played out in the context of others. So really, this book is a great um, Uh, source of application for us in that because we just see a personal story uh, played out and we get some lessons from it. So a little cultural background. Everybody ready for a little cultural background? All right. So the Roman Empire had approximately 50 million people. It's a big empire. About 50 million people. About 4 million of those were Roman citizens. You may recall like when Paul, you know, was about ready to get whipped, he said, hey, by the way, is it okay for you to whip a Roman citizen and the guy's like oh uh, no it's not right and so Roman citizens had a sort of a sort of an extra layer of if you will uh, stature in in society but about four million of these 50 million were Roman citizens about five to ten million were slaves so there were one to two times as many slaves in the Roman Empire as there were Roman citizens the city of Rome itself had about a million people. So slavery was very common. It was, uh, people could be enslaved for various reasons, you know, y- you know the, um, honestly, like, you know, kind of what we're, you know, used to in our history books, uh, sort of the exploitation of another person. Sometimes it could be like a willing, like if you had a debt, you could, um, you know, willingly serve as a slave to a person uh, to pay off a debt. Uh, And so there were lots of um, scenarios by which somebody could be a slave. And and certainly, you know, some were treated uh, more harshly than others. But at the end of the day, uh, we're talking about a huge slave population within the Roman Empire. And it was not uncommon for a runaway slave to be punished by execution. Okay. So if you were a a slave, uh, you could be killed for running away. All right. So that's the cultural backdrop. Lots of slaves, pretty harsh. You know, I think we've heard enough about the Roman Empire to know that, you know, they were pretty harsh. And they were particularly harsh to their slaves and uh, particularly their runaway slaves. Well, there's a man by the name of Philemon who lived in the city of Colossae and was likely saved by um, the ministry of Paul on Paul's third missionary journey in Ephesus. And so by this time, the time of this uh, writing, uh, this guy Philemon is hosting a church in his home, it would appear. Well, he he had previously owned a slave by the name of Onesimus, and Onesimus ran away. And by the way, on his way out the door, it appears that he stole some money and then ran away. Okay, so this guy's no good, right? He's a runaway slave. He's high risk of being executed, And he stole money on his way out the door. Well, he runs away from Colossae. Guess where he runs to? Anybody want to guess? Rome. To the city of Rome. 1,300 miles away. If you're a runaway slave, how far are you going to go to, like, the next town over? No. You going to Scottsburg? No, I don't think so. Milton? No. Never mind. You go 1,300 miles, okay? He goes 1,300 miles to a city of a million people. You might blend in the crowd, a city of a million people 1,300 miles away, right? Like, you know, I don't know a big city 1,300 miles away, a million people, you know, even by today's standards. If we went to a place 1,300 miles away from here, had a million people, we'd think, yeah, we could be pretty obscure. That's even in the world of Internet in the world of easy travel. Imagine just in in those days, no Internet, no easy travel, uh, it would have been a treacherous route for him to get there. But anyway, Onesimus runs away, winds up in Rome. Guess what happened in Rome? There's a prisoner there by the name of Paul. And he runs into Paul. Go figure. He winds up getting saved, right? Now you've got a runaway slave, turned Christian, hanging out with Paul, and that's the context of this letter. All right? Paul is now going to send this guy, Onesimus, back 1,300 miles to go back and, and get it right with Philemon. And that's the encouragement that Paul is sending. And, he's ask, and the letter is he's sending Onesimus back to Philemon to ask him to forgive this runaway slave. So Onesimus and a guy by the name of Tychicus, Tychicus, Tychicus however you want to pronounce it, uh, are carrying this letter and the letter to the Colossian church uh, that we know is the book of Colossians, They're, those two guys are carrying this letter back to uh, Philemon. So that's all the background, all right? So what we're going to do here, we're, we're going to sort of unpack this verse by verse, and then at the end, um, don't close your Bibles. What I'm going to do is I want to talk about each of the characters in the story because I think there's some, some fascinating application for each, for, regarding each of those characters in the story. Fair enough? All right. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. And so Paul now, he, you know, often he identifies himself. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here he says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Paul's in a Roman prison. You recall at the end of, book of at the book of Acts, you know, Paul has to, Uh, go through a trial in Jerusalem, then he goes through trials in Caesarea, and then he gets shipped off uh, after he appeals to Caesar, gets shipped off on a boat on their way to Rome. And uh, again, it was a treacherous uh, ride, you know, shipwreck, stranded on an island, bitten by a viper, uh, and, and, you know, delivered from that, Uh, hunger, uh, bad weather, just the whole nine yards, and then Paul winds up in Rome. And so he's in Rome. He's been unjustly accused. And so you might say Paul, a prisoner of Rome. But what's he say? Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now, he could say, God put me here. Now, if you're in Roman prison, unjustly, after all that treacherous ride even to get there, Would you be thankful or like, would you say, wow, cool, I guess God wants me here, right? I think we might say it'd be a little bit of a struggle to be thankful, but I want you to see the heart of Paul in this, okay? He's identifying himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. You know, prisoner seems like a harsh word, but not if we're a prisoner of Christ. What's it mean to be a prisoner? It means somebody else is taking care of our needs, right? Right? I saw a, you know, one of these stupid emails, you know, that you get junk mail emails once, you know, said, hey, I know of a, of a great society where you get three, fr- three free meals every day, you get your health care paid for, you get, you know, uh, you know, food and shelter and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, you don't have to really worry about anything. It's called prison, right? They feed you. They take, you get, you get rec time. You know, as far as I know, I don't know, as far as I know. You get rec time, you know, but if you put that, you know, if you say, well, I'm a prisoner of Christ, really what it means is I'm surrendering my will. He makes decisions for me now. He guides what I do. He takes care of me, and I'm good with that. And that's where Paul's at a good model for us and so he addresses this to Philemon and to Apphia which is likely his wife uh, commentators say and Archippus which is likely his son some say his son Archippus uh, was potentially pastoring this church that meets in the home of Philemon and so Philemon's a part of sort of a ministry team if you will a family ministry team which is a great model and uh, and so he's greeting them And then he goes on, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've been here for any bit of time, you know that Paul always addresses these letters, grace and peace. You know that we always park on that for a minute because grace and peace go hand in hand. Grace and peace go hand in hand. And I have known way too many, I'll just say this straight up, I have known way too many Christians over the years that have no peace They have no peace because they don't understand grace. Grace causes peace. They go hand in hand. Grace always precedes peace. It's never written peace and grace. It's written grace and peace. And let me just encourage us today. If we find ourselves lacking peace in our life, I think we need to go back and reassess the grace of God and the goodness of God. And God loves me Regardless, let me just tell you, if you, if you need the grace of God, if you, need to, if you need to read about the grace of God, read Ephesians chapter 2. Great picture of the grace of God. A great snapshot. So grace and peace, always hand in hand. The answer to peace is not psychology. The answer to peace is not your medical doctor. The answer to peace is grace. Verse 4. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers. Now, again, if you're in prison, unjustly, after a viper bite and a shipwreck, are you thanking God? Are you praying for others, or are you consumed and focused on your situation? It is too easy to focus on our situations. And when we do that, I mean, I get some, I mean, we go through stuff. I'm not, I'm not Please understand. I'm sensitive to your situations. I know a lot of them. And people go through hard things. But if we are consumed with that, it is very difficult to look inward and outward at the same time. You might make a case it's impossible to look inward and outward at the same time. And Paul is a man Who is thankful to God and outward focused. He says, I thank God, making a mention of you always in my prayers. It's, I mean, if you just get your head around that, that Paul is doing this while unjustly in prison, it's amazing. So he's writing this personal letter to Philemon. I thank God, making a mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith. Which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. He's just saying, you know what? I love to see, I love that I'm hearing about God working in your life. Since he's not focused on himself, he's not talking about his miserable situation, he's not consumed with that, he's able to hear about what God is doing in the lives of others. And we need to genuinely, you know, we want to foster that here. And, I, and believe me, I, I, I'm preaching to the choir a little bit because I think that you guys do an amazing job of this. But we need to continually be mindful of our concern for others. And in order to do that, we first have to take focus off of ourselves, at least to some extent. We want to hear about what God is doing in the lives of others. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. So there's genuine joy to be had, often untapped by recognizing what God is doing in the lives of others. Verse eight, therefore, so now he's coming in, he's moving in a little bit on on Philemon. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So Paul recognizes that there's a God-ordained authority in the church. Is there a God-ordained authority in the church? Yeah. Is that so I can be the boss here? Seriously? You guys are thinking about that? No. I don't want to be the boss here. That's a long story, but I tried, I, I tried not to be the boss here, right? I don't want to be the boss here, but I, but I have to walk in the role that God put me in, right? That's what authority is. But Paul here recognizes his own authority. He has the, uh, he has the authority. He could tell Philemon what, he's, what he needs to do. He could give Philemon a command, he says. But I really don't want to do it that way, he says. I would rather appeal to you for love's sake. This is so huge. This is so huge. If you have a leadership role at, at, at your workplace, if, you have a le- if, you have, if you're a parent, if you're uh, any kind of, uh, in any kind of authority s- structure, in any kind of authority position, this is huge. He said, I could command you to do what I'm about to ask, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to appeal for love's sake. Authority should never be used to exercise control, but rather to shepherd others. Authority should never be used to exercise control, but rather to shepherd others. Turn over to the right, 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm sorry, what I meant to say was, I appeal to you, would you please, if it's not too much trouble, turn in your Bibles over to the right, to First Peter chapter 5. If you don't want to, that's okay. That's between you and God. I feel like I'm in new territory. <laughs> the elders who are among you, I exhort. I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Basically saying, hey elders, this is your story. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. And again, let me just point out, often when we see that dishonest gain, our, our brain immediately goes to money. I think we should also maybe make our brain go to power, to control, to those sorts of things. That's dishonest gain just as much as, as, uh, as for money. Nor is being lords over it, over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So whatever, let's say, eldership you are, this is to elders in the church, to whatever eldership, to whatever level of authority you may have uh, in your life, and we're all under and over authority in some way, your goal is to shepherd the flock which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, and not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Well, you say, that's Paul. What about Jesus? Jesus, turn over to, uh, if it's okay, uh, to Matthew chapter 20. Starting verse 25. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those, and keep in mind, we're talking about a Jewish audience uh, primarily in the Roman Empire, right? When, you know, we, sometimes we read, sometimes we'll just blow through a statement like that. Hey, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Put your mind in the, in the, in the eye of the listener. You're a, you're, a, you're a Jewish person living in, in Jerusalem, we'll say. And you, you know very well what it looks like to have Roman soldiers come through town. You know what that feels like. You know what that does to your, to your heart rate when a Roman soldier comes riding in. He said, you know, the, the rulers of the Gentiles, the Romans specifically in this setting, lord it over them and those who are who are great exercise authority over them yet it shall not be so among you but whoever desires to become great among you let him be your servant and whoever desires to be first among you let him be your slave just as the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many so back to philemon you know paul says i could make a command but i'm instead going to appeal Peter says, you know, if you're in a leadership role, don't rule with an iron fist. Shepherd the flock that is among you. Jesus said, you know, the Gentiles that don't know better, they exercise authority like it's like for control. But it shouldn't be that way among you. If you want to be great, if you want to be in charge, if you will, be a servant. Be a servant. And so, you know, if you think about it, you want to get super big picture, right? When God created the world and created human beings, He could have created us as robots that, that He could command us to serve Him, right? But what did He do? He created us with a capacity for love that would recognize His love and that we would in turn respond to His love uh, with submission to Him. That's what He lo- that's what He wants. He wants that kind of relationship with us. He doesn't want robots that. You know, love because that's what his command was. And I think we don't want that as, as leaders as well. So Paul says, yep, I could command you, but I'm going to appeal as lo- uh, for love's sake. And I love this. Being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner. He said, by the way, I'm just a meek, mild, old guy. i got to tell you, my family, right? There's only one of us that's got gray hair, right? And who said Right. White, sorry. <laughs> it's just very blonde. So there's only one of us that has extremely blonde hair in our, in our family. And, you know, every now and then, I can just sort of diffuse the situation by identifying myself as the old guy, right? Because everybody feels sorry for the old guy, right? So Paul's saying, and if I were an old guy prisoner, man, I'd... Get whatever I want, right? So Paul says, I could command you, but hey, I'm just the old guy, and I'm also a prisoner. So I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. This is where he's getting to the point. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who, whom I have begotten while in my chain. So this guy, basically, he, I've begotten him as a son in the faith. He's become a, a believer, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. So we have an interesting situation here. So the appeal to Philemon is for him to completely forgive Onesimus. Onesimus is a new person. He was once unprofitable. His na- it's a little bit of a play on words because his name, I believe, means uh, profitable. He was once unprofitable, but now he's profitable. Notice this. Both to Philemon and to who? Paul. Right? Both to Philemon and to Paul. And so, you know, again, picture your Paul. Paul's in prison. Do you think Paul might have needs, right? Paul needs people to help take care of him, right? He would have had uh, opportunity to maybe for people to bring him food or bring him uh, what he needs and stuff like that, right? And And Onesimus would have been useful for that. But Paul is sending him back. Paul's not coveting Philemon as a part of his ministry team, if you will. And so Paul wants wants Philemon to completely forgive him because he's a new person. He's now profitable, and he's a different person. He says, verse 12, I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wished to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. So I'm sending him back. You know, he's profitable to you. He's profitable to me, but I'm not coveting him as uh, here to meet my needs. I'm sending him back. Again, it's great selflessness on the heart of Paul. So I'm sending him back. And when he comes back, I want you to forgive him, please. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntarily. But voluntary. So you see this? Paul's sending, Phile- sending Onesimus back to Philemon. He's saying, you know, I could tell you, you need to forgive this guy. But if he did, it wouldn't necessarily be heartfelt, right? He says, I'll tell you what, as the old guy, the prisoner, I would rather appeal to you, please forgive this guy. And he's literally sending this, catch this, he's literally sending this letter by the hand of this guy (laughs) back to Philemon To say, please forgive me. Like, Onesimus is the guy delivering the letter. It's pretty crazy. He says, I want this to be voluntary. For perhaps, verse 15, he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So Paul says, now perhaps, so Paul's always looking for what what might God be doing in this situation. Please catch this. Perhaps, maybe the entire reason that he left you in the first place was because God wanted him to be delivered from his sin, God wanted him to get a right relationship with himself, and then God wanted him to be useful both to you and to me, and then God wanted him to come back to you, now, not as a slave, but as a restored brother. Does that sound like a better deal, right? He could go back as an, obe- as an obedient slave, but maybe God brought him all the way to Rome so he could get saved, go all the way back, and now be fully restored as a brother, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Verse 17, if then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. So, again, this is where commentators say that probably Onesimus stole something. But Paul's saying, whatever he stole, I'll pay it back. I'll pay the debt. Who does that sound like? Who paid our debt? Jesus. You know, Romans tells us that God conforms us into the image of his son over time. I hope you take comfort in that, because there's a lot of me, there's a lot in me that doesn't quite look like Jesus yet, right? But I hope I can look at my life and see that I'm being conformed into the image of Christ. I hope we can see that for all of ourselves, right? And it's a process, to be fair, but Paul here looks very much like Jesus when he says, I'm not forcing you to do anything. I'm appealing to you based on love, and I'm sending this guy back, and whatever he owes, I'll pay it. He said, I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention that you owe me even your own life besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. So... You know, different commentators have all different kinds of takes on this. Some people say Paul was was manipulating a little bit. Could have been. You know, Paul was a pretty persuasive speaker, right? Uh, But he's kind of like, oh, by the way, Philemon, remember when you and I met, you were lost. And I preached the gospel to you. And you got saved. So, you know, maybe don't forget that while you're thinking if you're going to forgive this guy or not. Right? And so... We'll cut Paul some slack. He's being conformed into the image of Christ. So if it was manipulation, we'll say, okay, he's being conformed. But uh, he just wants this guy to be forgiven. Verse 21, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. So he's, you know, he's confident here. This is interesting. Paul somehow, he's in prison, and he's confident that he's going to be released from prison. Now, does Paul have a, um, an unrealistic, like, I'm just going to claim whatever I want and say that's God's will and, and this is going to happen and so I'm going to get out of prison and that's how it's going to roll? No. If you look at the book of 2 Timothy, Paul says, I'm in prison and I'm pretty much uh, coming to my end, Right? So it's a very different tone. But history plays out that after Paul's first imprisonment, he was released for a while. He traveled around uh, a little while longer, uh, preached the gospel in various places. Nobody knows for sure because it's not in the Scripture, but historians talk about different places that he, that he possibly went, and, and the Scripture alludes to where he'd like to go after he's you know, like this. He wants to come and visit Philemon, and maybe he did. But the reality is... That's how it played out. And so he knows, uh, it appears the Holy Spirit has told him that he knows that he's got the confidence that he's going to get out. And when he does, hey, I'm going to come visit you. Make a guest room ready for me, please. And so uh, he's just making plans, very, very practical um, faith-based plans. And then he says, verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. As do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. And so these guys are with him. And again, it highlights the idea that you know, relationship, ministry happens in the midst of relationships. Ministry happens not in a vacuum. Ministry happens by people following the Lord together rubbing against each other, right, sometimes rubbing the rough edges off of each other, sometimes uh, overcoming challenges together, sometimes sharing joys together. And all of that happens in a community of believers. And Paul here, even in prison, he says, I'm with Epaphras, my fellow prisoner. Uh, He greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow laborers. And let me just, while I'm here, tell you that relationship also involves risk. Can I tell you this? Relationship involves risk. We know from uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul will say, Demas has forsaken me because he loved this world more than he loved the Lord. So let that not be said of any of us, but relationship involves risk. Is that okay? Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. And then he closes, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. This letter is all about grace. This letter is really, if you think about it, this letter is a guy named Philemon got saved by the grace of God, a guy by the name of Onesimus gets saved by the grace of God, both of whom having been preached to by a man, Paul, who got saved by the grace of God. And now Paul is asking Philemon to extend the grace of God to his former runaway slave, Onesimus. Right? Right? This story is all about grace. So, before we close, I want you to consider this, the, the players in this story, if you will. Think of this as like a one-act play, okay? This letter. How many characters are in this play? Anybody? Somebody said three? We'll go with three. We'll go with three. Paul. The punchline is the answer is four. Start with Paul. Is Paul a character in this play? Yeah. What do we learn about Paul from this? Again, I said the Christian life is played out. Right? We know things about Paul's character. We know about his relationship with God. We know about who Paul is by seeing how he interacts with others. You see this? How we interact with others often reflects who we are. And so what we know from Paul, he has a love for God and a love for others that causes him to see beyond his own circumstances. If we could stop there and learn that one and own it and live it, wouldn't that be amazing? And myself included? Wouldn't that be amazing? Yes. He doesn't use his authority to make demands on others. He wants what's best for others more than for himself. He said that Onesimus was useful to him. Now, if I'm in, I don't know what's 1,300 miles away. We'll say somewhere in Colorado. Is Colorado 1,300 miles away-ish? Yeah, whatever. Yeah, sure. We'll say Colorado's 1,300 miles away. I'm over there with some guy that just got saved who did you wrong back in Madison, and I'm in prison. Hello, I need help too. I need pris- I'm in prison, and this guy's 1,300 miles away through treacherous terrain to get back home to you. I'm going to be very tempted to tell this guy, you know what, why don't you just hang out with me live out God's grace, right? It's 1,300 miles away. I think Philemon's over it by now, last I heard. He'll be all right, right? This guy's useful to Paul, but Paul doesn't do that. Paul doesn't do that. Paul does what he knows to be right, regardless of how it might turn out for him. Paul does what he knows to be right, regardless of how it might turn out for him. It would have been beneficial for Paul if Onesimus had stayed in Rome. Second character in the play, Onesimus, right? Onesimus has experienced the saving grace of Jesus Christ and now finds himself useful to Paul. So we'll call him a minister because being a Christian means you're a minister, And he's helping out Paul however he can. And as he's helping out Paul however he can, he feels sort of this, you know, this sort of son in the faith relationship with Paul, like Paul's, you know, my spiritual mentor. I want to do what he says. And, hey, Paul, can I get you some food? And, yeah, hey, Paul, can, you know, are you cold? Can I help go find uh, some warm clothing or a blanket for you? Yeah, Paul, hey, can I, you know, can I, you know, do whatever, and, and, Paul, and you know that's great. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And Paul says, tell you what, Onesimus, here's what I want you to do. I just wrote out this letter. I want you to take it 1,300 miles, to which he might say, I meant like, I'll do whatever you want me to do here. Right? I want you, Onesimus, to take this letter 1,300 miles and deliver it to a friend of mine. Okay, sure, anything for you, Paul. Who do you want me to deliver it to? The man who could have you executed. Right? What does Onesimus do? Catch this. He delivers the letter. He delivers the letter. Let me ask you this. You ever face a situation where you're like, Dude, I don't know how this is going to turn out right? I mean, I hear your stories. We face those things all the time, right? And I think so often we can work it. So, yeah, I'm going to take this letter back to Onesimus, but I know that he's always playing golf on Thursday afternoons, so I'm going to make sure I show up at 2 p.m. on Thursday and like just leave it on his front door and then Get back to Rome. Right? We can work it a little bit. Right? Is that what Paul is? I mean, at the end of the day, this guy knows what Paul wants. What's Paul asking him to do? What's God asking him to do? I want you to hand this, I want you to look this guy in the eye. I want you to tell him, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And I want you to hand him this letter. Would that be hard? Would there be a little uncertainty in that scenario? Yeah. Do we face that kind of stuff? Maybe not our potential execution, I hope. But get the idea? We have so often a choice. Please hear this, church. This is so serious and it's so relevant. Every day. We have a choice between doing what I know to be the right thing to do and The thing that I think will work it out, like, so I don't get hurt too bad. Right? And that right thing to do often involves risk. Often involves risk. And when you work it, so I'm going to, like, work this thing so that it doesn't hurt me too bad and it minimizes my risk, and then it works, and... Everything works out all right. Who gets the glory? You do. Because you don't know if God worked it out or not. You just worked the situation. One of my favorite stories, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 16, King Asa. King Asa is the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. Uh, Baasha I believe it was uh, king of the northern kingdom of Israel is coming against him he's building up some strongholds and King Asa who is a good king by the way who has seen God work who we would call him a believer he sees this threat coming from the north and so he works a deal with the Syrians up above and says hey I know you guys had a treaty with the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, Baasha. But this guy's coming against me now. Can I bribe you with some gold and silver and get you to break the treaty and get him to back off? Well, what's any good Gentile, carnal, idol-worshipping nation say? Sure. Right? Sure. Syria breaks their treaty with the northern kingdom of Israel, Right? Northern Kingdom of Israel now feels a little bit vulnerable. King Basha backs off, uh, you know, doesn't pose a threat anymore, takes down the strongholds, all of that backs off. Asa wins. Or does he? Does he? The prophet then comes to Asa and said, You have done foolishly. You have done foolishly. It says the eyes, Second uh, Chronicles 16.9, one of my favorite verses. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are faithful to him. God wants you to do the right thing. Not worry about the circumstances. Not worry about, well, how is this going to play out? But do the right thing. And he shows himself strong as we are faithful to him. So that's Onesimus. Philemon. Philemon, we don't, it's interesting, we don't know how, this, how he's going to respond to this letter. Right? We don't know who he was, but we know he has a choice to make. And we often have these choices to make. Let's say we're in the side of Philemon. This guy Onesimus comes, right? And this plays out in life too, right? I th- we probably all know a little bit about this. This guy Onesimus comes... You're Philemon? First of all, how how are you going to stand? Like this. What's on your mind, Oni? Right? Well, you know, I got saved. Paul told me to come back. Please forgive me. You got a choice to make, don't you? You got a choice to make that will determine... your heart you could walk in bitterness or you can walk in forgiveness can i tell you this we have opportunity to forgive people all the time and we could argue about whether or not they deserve it or whether or not what they did you know you know sometimes we'll say i'll forgive you but i'm going to make you recount everything you did and go through every ugly detail and make me feel a little bit better about how bad you wronged me right What is that? It's called bitterness. It will destroy you, not Onesimus. And we have choices all the time, whether to walk in forgiveness or to walk in bitterness. And by the way, I said we're being conformed into the image of Christ, right? What defines Jesus? If nothing else defines Jesus, what is it? Forgiveness. That's the work that he did. He died on a cross for our forgiveness, right? Right? So if we're going to be conformed to the image of Christ, if we're going to look anything like Christ, and we have a choice between bitterness and forgiveness, we've got to always choose forgiveness. Now, as I say that, I know situations are complicated. Sometimes forgiveness might mean that, you know, you have... You might have to protect those that are entrusted to you. Sometimes forgiveness might leave them vulnerable, stuff like that. There are circumstances like that. But I'm saying at the heart of it, you've got to choose forgiveness over bitterness. Who's the fourth character in this story? I won't ask for a show of hands, but this is important. Do we see a fourth character mentioned by name in this story? No, no, not really. I mean, those other guys, you know, Timothy, our brother, and all that, right? But is there a fourth character mentioned in this story? I'm making you work through it a little bit. If you notice, I'm making you work through this a little bit? Right? The fourth character is God. And this, I think, in many ways, defines how we live our day-to-day life. Do we see the fourth character or not? Or do we just see the horizontal world, right? Horizontal world, think about this now. Horizontal world said, yeah, there's this guy, he's a Christian back in Colossae. Yeah, there's a guy, who's a Christian over in Rome. Yeah, he's a runaway slave. He goes over here. He, gets, he becomes a Christian now. He gets forgiven. Uh, Paul's going to send him back, and he's going to try to forgive him uh, because that's good for him. And we see it all like this, right? But did you notice what I think is maybe the most important word in this, in this chapter? Perhaps, perhaps God is doing something. Perhaps there's a runaway slave that travels 1,300 miles to reach a destination of a city of a million people so he can hide out in the crowd. That's a reasonable proposition if you're a runaway slave. Perhaps he's trying to get as far away from Colossae as possible. He's trying to be as obscure as he can. He's trying to blend into the crowd, and oh, by the way, it just so happens that he runs into a guy named the Apostle Paul. Maybe even some commentators say, maybe because he committed some other crime, winds up in jail with Paul. like they're Cellies, right? It's a prison term, you wouldn't understand. Right? Maybe he's Cellies with Paul. Right? What's the chance of that? That's one of those things that makes you say, huh. Just so happens, he runs into Paul. Oh, by the way, how did Paul get there? Unjustly accused in Jerusalem. Goes to Caesarea. Hangs out there for a couple of years while a couple of uh, Roman leaders are trying to decide how bad they want to manipulate the situation and what they want to do. And, you know, it seems like he's just hanging out there forever. And then finally goes off to to Rome and gets shipwrecked, you know, near starvation, gets bit by a viper, winds up showing up in Rome and when he gets there, he wants to to address his accusers and they're like, "We didn't know there's anything w- wrong." And so he winds up in a Roman prison, right? It was not like coincidental that he happened to be there at that time being cellies with Onesimus, right? Paul preaches to him and gets saved. Perhaps, perhaps all that happened so this guy could go back and be reunited with his former master and have a relationship that was better than he could have imagined otherwise. Maybe he could have a life that was better than he could have imagined otherwise. Perhaps God did that. Who's the fourth character in this story? God. Who's really the first character in this story? God. And how often do we look at life circumstances, life situations, life events like it's some kind of horizontal timeline? Right? And oftentimes we miss the opportunity to see wow, what is God doing here? How is God leading here? What's God doing in my heart? What's God doing in your heart? How's God working out these details? Perhaps today God is working in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13. Perhaps, Ephesians 3.20, God wants to bless us today exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think. You know, if you, were at, if you were in Rome talking to Onesimus, say, what would be like a crazy way God could bless you? Oh, I don't know. Like, hang out here in Rome, live the rest of my life, not get arrested, not get my head chopped off by Nero, right? He wouldn't have even imagined, most likely, going back to Philemon and getting restored and having so much greater blessing there than he would have otherwise. When we surrender to the Lord, when we surrender to the Lord, the blessing is always better than we could have ever imagined. And we can take it to the bank. There were great examples from Paul. There were great examples from Onesimus. There are great examples even potentially from Philemon. But the biggest lesson is don't miss what God is doing. God's always at work. God is always at work. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you are always working that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show yourself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are fully committed to you. And so, Lord, help us to be those people, loyal to you, fully committed to you, surrendered to you, that you would empower us and strengthen us to live the way these guys did, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be that way, to live that way, to experience the victory that you have available to us. Lord, help us to live accordingly. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, everybody. Awesome, awesome week.